0: Each morning checked the skin my lover abandoned.
1: Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Cindy Young Oak, bringing bits of poetry, poetics, and prompting to you and your day. Joining us is Torrin A. Great House, transgender, cripple punk poet and essayist, whose second collection, Deed, is forthcoming from Wesleyan University Press in fall 2024. Torrin's first book, Wound From the Mouth of a Wound, published by Milkweed Editions in 2020, includes the much-beloved line, Some girls are not made, but spring from the dirt. Studied in disability justice and archival critique, Torn innovates poetic form. Today we focus on the burning high Bun, their own creation, writing from prompts, and the words that burn. Torn, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Yes, I'm excited to be here.
1: You created a new poetic form, the burning high Bun that has become incredibly known, taught, transformed. What is it like to have created something for your own work that has now become almost like an open source software that others are writing in and returning to you as a reader?
0: I really love that concept of the form in relation to open source software. And, you know, I think this is so true of any time we write poems, right? They are something that leaves our hand and inevitably are altered by being in the world. And I think as, you know, the baby poet who wrote like the first attempts toward this form in 2016, I think my past self would have never imagined that the form has the life it has now. I mean, to now see all of these writers and, you know, some writers I really love Developing a relationship to this thing I made. It's just something that I don't know if I'll ever quite emotionally be over. How did the Haibun come to you before you burned it? Yeah, so my relationship to the Haibun initially began with the work of two poets. Uh, one is Ocean Vong and the poem Immigrant Haibun, which is referenced in the essay and then also the work of the brilliant poet Amy Natsukumaratil. And the haiban form, for folks who don't know, is a traditional Japanese haikai form, beginning with a prose block and concluding with a kind of capstone haiku. They were often travelogues, and their creation is attributed to the poet Matsuo Basho. They're just a form I really love because of Kind of inherent tension existing between the more maximalist prose block and the more minimalist poetic gesture required right, the haiku. in that haiku. Yeah,
1: and then the burning haibun reworks that traditional form, but also expands it. So there are three segments, and we have the prose poem, an erasure of that poem, and then an erasure of that text to create the haiku. And the latter two have text redacted, which Mm -hmm. is really visually also stimulating. So maybe let's hear a recent burning high bun of yours to kind of indicate how listeners might visualize it. We have Dancing in the Dark. This poem takes up the lyrics of a Bruce Springsteen song and actually started with the haiku and not a prose block. Yeah. Yeah, let's start with the first section, which is a prose block. All right.
0: Dancing in the dark after Bruce Springsteen. I spent summer cloistered behind the curtain of my room, chest wrapped in stolen bra and panicked sweat. Woke each morning, ribs checkmarked with the red echo of skins dreaming what it might become. First learned the failures of my body in what a lover abandoned. Saw in her discarded clothes my chest as absent. Sold the whole season on a dream of looking like someone else. Danced in a candle's soft pirouette of smoke. Springsteen crackling in the speakers. Like harsh light across a mirror's torn silver skin. He sings, come on, baby. This town will be carving you up. You gotta stay, baby. I'm sick of this. And I want to sing back, finish this broken lyric, body. I let the song play over and over till Bruce's voice fails him. I want to press my lips to the hole his voice has burned in the dark and ask him if he ever stopped wanting to change. I stand in my bathroom with all the lights off. Clothed in nothing but the word man, the first lie I ever stripped off my tongue. I shave down to my scalp, each strand ignites hair of brilliant wicks, stubble to sparks lighting my face, leaving a silhouette of ash.
1: Thank you for that emotive reading. Um, the second section, then the second part, is a much shorter prose block with strings of words that have been redacted, leaving some of the words spaced apart. They're all in the same order as the first section. Let's hear that.
0: I spent summer behind the curtain of my panicked sweat. Each morning checked the skin my lover abandoned. Saw my chest looking like a candle in the mirror. I want to finish this broken body. Over and over I press my lips to the dark and ask to change. Stand in my bathroom, lights off, clothed in man, the first lie of my tongue. I shave my hair to sparks, my face ash.
1: The final section is the haiku, with five syllables in the first line, then seven, then five. So it's a smaller three-line section with further redacted space. Let's hear that.
0: Check my look in the mirror. I want to change my clothes, my hair, my face.
1: This poem removes so many curtains of space and self... Meters shifting, meaning is shifting, and within that first part, there's shaving, igniting, selling, discarding, crackling. So I think this almost indicates what the erasures are really about. Not erasure, but in what might become, in what becomes present in absence. How is working with a form so interested in getting to some core of language and of ideas affected your relationship to the possibilities of poetry?
0: You know, a lot of the books when I was a young poet that I read about poetry and poetics talked about the kind of end goal of the lyric poem being this epiphany. Mm. And that's something I always really resisted. But in a way, (laughs) I ended up creating this form which inherently pushes toward the haiku as an epiphany buried in the text that we burn the text away to reveal. Right. I was a kid who was obsessed with spies. Mm. And I remember the kind of secret code things that you would do. And one of them right is writing on paper with lemon juice. Yes. And you can reveal that by holding it over a candle or a light bulb. Classic. And in a lot of ways this form it's a similar gesture. There's a kind of hidden code. And this is much more true of the later versions of this form The first Burning Haiban, that haiku came out of the process of erasure. Since then, I figured out this is maybe not the most efficient way to write my own form. (laughs) And I've started by having that haiku in mind. And really, it was this poem. It was Dancing in the Dark, the second Burning Haiban I wrote, that kind of taught me about how the workflow of my own a uh, form should work. And mm-hmm. you know, going back to that metaphor of open source software, mm-hmm. I kind of had to keep working with the software it already made mm. to work out the bugs.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I did not create the Burning High to create a, like, capital F form. At its inception, it was a nonce form. You know, um, this term meaning a form used for one specific poem. And then I realized I would kind of struck on gold that it was (laughs) such an interesting approach that I returned to it and have continued to return to it.
1: I think it makes sense that the process has changed as well as the matter, the words moving into it. I'm curious, why do you think you were so interested in spies and what made you so excited about this idea of coding and decoding?
0: You know, I was a very shy kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't have many friends growing up. We moved around a lot. And so, as a kid who, you know, most of my time was spent in my internal world, the idea that even as I was not interacting with the people around me, you know, as a very introverted child, who, you know, there was a lot I was working out as a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know I was trans. I didn't know I was queer. I didn't know I was autistic. But I did always fundamentally feel like I was hiding something. Mm. And I didn't know what those things were. But life dictated, you know, as someone growing up in the 90s, that these were not things... I could reveal even if I had fully been aware of them. And so the idea of being a spy, of having this external face and everything going on underneath the surface of moving unseen, this really, I mean, isn't it such a great metaphor for being closeted or for, you know, masking as an autistic person.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: I think a lot of this, you know, comes through in my work now. I am still an incredibly introverted person. And I think maybe that's why so much of my work has a very maximalist bent. The page is the loudest I ever get to be. The essay you
1: wrote about the burning high bun for the summer issue of the magazine is from this new prompt series. The series is called Not Too Hard to Master, and it includes Tashani Doshi writing on shape poems, Terrence Hayes writing on the Sistina. Hayes even included a little... DIY worksheet, both are incredibly resourceful poets and turn on existing forms, as are you and as do you. And you've worked with the Sestina, the Abbasidarian, prose poems. I see all three of you, among others, working against how form worked before, trying to create an invitation rather than a set of rules. Are there other frameworks in poetry that have guided you in this way and given you an opportunity to share and shift without imposing a specific dominant form?
0: In relation to form and poetry, no matter what form I'm working in, you know, whether that is a nonce form I've constructed for a poem, whether it's a received form or an invented form. And I think at this point I've invented like four or five poetic forms just because that seems to be a very generative space for me. Mm. I'm often thinking in terms of form as an architecture of meaning. Mm -hmm. That being, you know, we can write anything into a form, but certain things about how these different structures are shaped inherently alters how we write in those spaces. You know, a sestina, because of its repetition, to me, it will always be a form about obsession or traumatic memory because we return and remake and return and remake and return and remake. Yes. And, you know, similarly, a sonnet, always inherently kind of going to be an argument because you need that turning of the volta. If we imagine a poetic form as a room it's not a room we arrive to that you know doesn't have furniture in it. These are furnished rooms. They might have the history of who is written in them, what the common themes are. And so when I approach any kind of received poetic shapes, I'm also thinking about how do I work with those pre-existing ideas in relationship to them? How do I conform to or subvert these things? So like um, the sonnet has this common relationship to love, and in particular, a kind of high courtly love. So what does it mean then to write a sonnet about lust or a sonnet about the failure of love? Mm -hmm. And so these are ways in which I'm thinking about entry points to All of the things, you know, poetry is full of so much received material and history. And I think we're kind of doing a disservice if we don't also think about that history as a building block we can play with.
1: I think play is such a good word for what you do. You're acknowledging and understanding what exists. And you're playing with it, messing with it, and you're also questioning it. I think about the poem that the series is named after. It's not too hard to master, taken from a line from the very famous and infamous Villanelle, One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. And this form similarly has this recurrence of feeling, these memories that shift and fragment, and a refusal of some of the received language and material while also a play with that language. Let's hear an excerpt from that poem read by the wonderful poet John Murillo. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then, practice losing farther, losing faster, faces and names, and where it was you meant to travel. none of these will bring disaster The not too hard to master turns out to be slightly ironic, a kind of story we tell ourselves, maybe to contend with loss. In what sense do you conceive of the burning high bun also in terms of that fragmentation, the art of losing and the art of transforming.
0: You know, in some ways, to keep going with these uh, computing metaphors we've had going on, um, I think a lot about the idea that when you move files from certain types or compress them, there is such thing as lossy conversion, Mm. where you lose more data from the file. And I think about this a lot, particularly in the move from like a rich file type, like a PNG, down to something like a JPEG. You always lose data that you can't regain. And in some ways, the erasure is a kind of poetic, lossy conversion. I think this is very clear in the first published Burning haibun. I don't think it's a particularly strong haiku. I have a lot of love for this poem. But, you know, I've sat with it now for seven years. And... You know, looking at it, part of the reason that I've changed the way I enter the Burning Haiban as a form is because I saw working in only one direction in that way as Mm. creating a kind of loss where the end result is definitely not the strongest part of that poem. Mm. Whereas if I could seed those words from a planned haiku it felt like there was less of a sense of loss in the translation between these different poetic gestures. So the lossy conversion
1: prevention includes now starting with the central haiku, building them out into longer versions of the poem, into that first part, into that second part, and versus the first one came from the full version being narrowed down. I wonder if there's an equivalent process for a poetry collection For your first book, or now your upcoming second book, Deed, out next year, were they both created in the same way, having all the poems and then finding the core within them, versus knowing what would be the key, what would be the version of the book haiku, and then building around that?
0: Actually, a very fun way, I think the two books separately really represent those two versions of the process. The first book, I did have a kind of guiding idea. It really is, you know, a concerted four years of working toward a book, largely by working toward poems. and mm. didn't find its key until the year before it was picked up for publication. And that was the, oh, I'm forgetting the word. It's not titular, it's
1: eponymous. Epidom- eponymous, yes. Eponymous. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, so the key of this book really came in the writing of the eponymous poem, Medusa with Head of Perseus. I often tell students when I go and visit classes that this was the poem that made me realize I'd kind of been writing about intergenerational trauma the whole time and not realize that that was the core thread mm-hmm. that held all of the other themes of the book together. Mm. On the other hand, as I was working on the second book, Deed, I had a very clear vision. I've actually been working on the second book for longer than the first. Mm. At this point, it's about eight years. but wow. as I entered the process of writing this book as a whole, I knew it was fundamentally a triptych. Mm. So a triptych, for folks who don't know, is a form of religious art. I think maybe the most common kind of triptych is birth, life, and then crucifixion of Jesus. And I'm really interested in the triptych form and its relationship to Christianity as a cultural mythology. And because this is something that comes up frequently in my writing, particularly in this new book, I wanted to play with what it might mean to do this structure. I was thinking about the triptych mirror, in which, you know, three paneled mirrors, the two on the sides partially reflect each other. And so looking into one, you can also see yourself in another. And so I wanted to play with how poems would relate across the span of a collection. And so the composition of the book also necessitated planning these relationships. And so it was very much built with a particular architecture in mind and knowing what I wanted the end product to be.
1: Do you think that you could have written Deed, your second book, if you hadn't first written Wound from the Mouth of a Wound, your first book?
0: I think it would have been a very different book. Right. Most first books, to be frank, get picked up through the prize system, Mm -hmm. which in some ways necessitates writing your book differently. You'll see all kinds of advice online about front-loading a collection because you know, the first round readers might only read the first 10 pages. The way I structured that first book, yes, it was about what I thought worked, but it also wasn't necessarily not to front load those first 10 pages and then to also make sure the back 10 were very strong. Mm -hmm. There was a little reorganizing once it was already under contract. But in writing my second book, I didn't want to give up anything about kind of artistic integrity of the book for the more capitalistic elements of surviving as a writer.
1: Yeah, the incentives. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I'll admit the book has been mostly done for about two years and it took that long to get picked up. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to talk about this stuff because they're not things I ever heard when I was starting out but not making those sacrifices against what my vision was, I think have paid off. I'm really happy with the way that this book has turned out in a way that, you know, I still love my first book. But there are ways now, looking back on it, there are things that would change. You know, almost any poet will say that looking back at their earlier work.
1: Poetry published a series of poems from your new book, Deed, which is out in 2024. There's no trace of the word transgender in Adrian Rich's biography is one of them. I wonder if you would read this for us.
0: Yeah. yeah. So this poem, which was in part inspired by a tweet from the fantastic trans poet Jameson Fitzpatrick, responds to the publication of the biography The Power of Adrian Rich by Hillary Holliday, which not only fails to reckon with Rich's complicity in helping Janice Raymond pen her famously transphobic manifesto, The Transsexual Empire, The Making of the she it utilizes Raymond as one of the primary sources. So I wanted to engage directly with Rich's poetry as a way of also playing around with this idea of legacy. So this poem remixes some lines from Rich's poems, Diving into the Wreck and Song, as well as utilizing a line from her essay, Women and Honor, Some Notes on Lying. There's no trace of the word transgender in Adrian Rich's biography. The term transsexual does not appear anywhere at all. And this is how a history is written out of itself. Blood bleached from a cloth till no mark remains, but the chemical burn. Antonym of a shadow. Lying is done with words and also with silence. The book does not concern itself with blood, is best known for new revelations about her sexual past. It's so easy for us to forget. History and biography share no common root. God knows this is neither poem, nor myth, nor biography, but with its gift for burning. She helped to pen a book which buried us, which named our gender a transsexual empire, ever-expanding border of male dominion, a metaphor failing itself into a blade. They tried to name us by a blade as well, you know. Sappho by surgery, scalpel-borne dykes. They say our bodies are violent by virtue of breath. But to make our skin livable is to render women down to objects to commit a kind of theft, a misappropriation. They say to claim our womanhood is nothing less than an act of rape, Metaphor again scraping its edges sharp, tasting blood. In the end, the author thanks her for her creative criticism and constant encouragement. Her words were purposeful, the words are maps. I won't forget the damage done, the meds denied, surgery withheld, the girls who suffered But she's dead and unapologetic. Her violence buried along with her. Our wounds rubbed nameless as the stone of a grave. And here I am in the meaningless wake of it. The thing she denied. The girl and not the story of the girl. The thing herself and not the myth.
1: I remember first learning about Adrienne Rich's role in uh, making white feminism an anti-trans space so actively. It was really disappointing, not just about her, but to think that I never heard that when being taught her work or uh, just until so many years later and and it wasn't in school. Uh, Was that something you were educated in initially? Was the biography uh, a moment of accessing Rich's life in a different way?
0: other than searching for any reference to this history, I didn't bother to read the entirety of this biography. I'm not particularly interested in acquainting myself with a revisionist history of Adrian Rich as a figure. I think, importantly, that biography particularly was an entry point to the poem. But this was already thing... These were already things... I was ruminating on. Mm -hmm. It was maybe not the best choice for my own emotional place, but I read the entirety of that transphobic manifesto, which it's long. It's it's really long for this poem. Mm. You know, in a lot of ways, I think it was a positive experience. Mm. Not the reading of it, but in reading that, I really became acquainted with a playbook that has not changed, that transphobes are still using in the same ways as they were in the 1970s. Right. And that is a kind of baffling thing to me, that all of the transphobic laws that are being pushed now are built on the same rhetoric that was established then. One of the reasons that this poem and another poem, which responds to a deeply transphobic poem by the poet Sharon Olds are in this book because I think particularly in this moment when legislatively transphobia is being pushed across the country and this is the result of concerted efforts Mm -hmm. by supposed radical feminists who have put themselves in the pocket of the right wing, in the pocket of oftentimes fascists, For the purposes of pushing a deeply transphobic agenda. You know, when this is so... It is a constant element of life right now. Mm -hmm. Today, the day of us recording this, it won't come out, you know, for a while. But today a news story came out about a trans woman in Milan, Italy, being beaten and tortured in the streets by police. This kind of transphobic violence and rhetoric is being pushed worldwide, not just in the US. And I think given the political climate we are in right now and what that means as a trans woman, it feels deeply important to look Back at the histories of these feminist poetic figures. And, you know, in particular, and I think this is inextricable from it, these white feminist political figures, because so much of transphobia is also tied up in white supremacy. Right. I think it's important to look back at these histories and not to let these women off the hook. And so this is among many things that this new book is trying to do, one of the missions is to really look at rhetoric existing among you know feminist writers among medical institutions that reifies cultural transphobia
1: i think it's so true that there's this impulse that some may have to see writing differently this note about letting people off the hook when language is so key to state violence, as well as the normalization in policy or or in culture through language. And for writers who have been a part of that persecution, it feels so heinous and particularly important to focus, as you have, on the language, on the poem level, and in the ways that there is maybe hypocrisy or telling on the self on the part of some of these writings?
0: I think a lot about language in terms of its existence as a tool. You know, if we look at the history of humanity, so often, even in the absence of access to a weapon, tools have been remade outside of their purpose. This is actually a phenomenon Talked about in terms of tool abuse, but so often, you know, people have taken up things like pitchforks and they become no longer a tool for moving hay, but a weapon. Language is the greatest tool humanity has ever made. Mm -hmm. And also, quite possibly our most violent weapon. You know, I think this is particularly true of a settler colonial language like English, which is constructed on so many historical thefts and borrowings that Mm. exists in a really odd kind of phantom linguistic space. And so language is a thing that we as writers have to be particularly careful with because we are wielding a weapon or we are wielding a tool that if used wrong, if abused, becomes a weapon. And so in my own writing, as well as in my interaction with the writing of others, whether that's other poets, writers, in the medical space, it's so important for me to think about this relation of weapon to tool, to make sure that not only am I bringing to task of violences that have been done with language, but also to make sure that I am not doing violence. Mm. I think that's one of the most fundamental parts of our jobs as people who espouse a love and an interest and a lifelong investment in language.
1: I certainly agree. Identifying with power as well as the lack of power can be a really important way to contend with reality there are emotional experiences that may lead toward one or the other, but to be able to hold both, I think, seems difficult and really important. Are there moments where where that has kind of come to a head for you? Are there moments where you had to work with your role in a way that felt complicating or felt confusing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think importantly, right, even as I talk about this politic in relation to language, this is not to say I don't fuck up. Mm -hmm. I am a human and like a young human. I have not been on the earth for that long. And, you know, there are times I've messed up. There are times that I have caused harm with my writing. You know, I think about... Particularly in relation to disability politics, the way that so many layers of the way we think about metaphor are tied up in cultural ableism. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had to be called in by other disabled writers who occupy different identities. You know, like using deafness as a metaphor, it happened so often. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been guilty of this and have been called in and have changed this in my work. And I think it's important to address the fact that no matter how good our intentions are, we're going to screw up. We're going to get things wrong. And the only thing that, you know, as people who espouse care for language, we can do from there is fix it, is be better. You know, the poems that I had that made those oddest kinds of of moves because I was Mm undereducated were, you know, they might have been published with that language and it was fixed by the time it was in my first book. This to me is deeply important. And I think there's such a fear of screwing up, of getting things wrong that mm-hmm. that we sometimes freeze up, you know, fundamentally, no one's gonna get it right a hundred percent of the time. I can really only hope for like a good eighty-five. And to have my ears, and and even there, see, like, this is a moment where I'm, like, moving toward a hearing framework. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. even when I screw up, just having a willingness Mm -hmm. to be corrected and to then correct myself.
1: Also, it's such an act of love, the fact that you had these poems that were in an early stage, and you were able to have conversations that led you to understand the language differently and transform them before they were in your book takes community takes care takes courage and is such a way to connect and to care for your work and to care for you as a writer
0: yeah and you know this is one of the things that poetry has given as a gift to me you know to have all of these spaces of community Almost all of my best friends are poets and, you know, there's folks that I've got to grow alongside since, you know, I first started writing and those friendships have nurtured me and taught me and I'm sure the people closest to me would say the same. It has offered the space for constant intellectual and emotional and political growth And I think I will never have a short acknowledgement section in a book because (laughs) my work and my thought owes so much to the writers Mm. I've been lucky enough to surround myself with.
1: Was that always the case for you? Were you always surrounded by writers? Or did that come to be once you were publishing and once you were in your MFA?
0: A lot of my early career was really quite in isolation. You know, I had... Mm an open mic I would go to, and some of the people associated with other readings around that. But, you know, I was in undergrad in Orange County at the time. It's not a great spot for poetry. (laughs) You know, it's just a little geographically isolated. We don't really have access Mm -hmm. to the wealth that is the LA poetry scene. We don't really have access to the wealth that is the San Diego poetry scene. And so I kind of started as a poet in a bubble. And it was by publishing my own work. And by running a small, now long defunct magazine, that I was able to start creating these other relationships. You know, I think a lot Mm -hmm. about my relationship with the poet George Abraham. Incredible, incredible poet. And You know, this is someone who I met because when I was running this little tiny lit mag out of my college apartment, we were one of the first places where they published. And now this is one of the people who's in closest community with me, part of a collective of poets and multi-genre writers, artists, critics, etc. called the Double Six Collective. And This is a relationship I never could have guessed would exist as it does now, but was really reliant on, at the time, just using the internet to give myself community, even when I was in a kind of isolation where I didn't have enough community where I physically was then.
1: Yeah, the internet, seems like the internet has been key for you and that you've also found ways to surprise yourself as this poet now for what you would have imagined as a younger poet, as a starting poet, and those surprises hopefully give back to that time and to the efforts you made to build a community. We are starting this new segment called Question into the Void, and we have an amazing question from Omar Seker for you. It is a question that he gave not knowing to whom it would be played, and uh, his question seemed really relevant to some of the work you're doing in terms of reconstituting and recreating language and envisioning English in a different way.
0: My name is Omar Seker. My question for you is this. Is restitution or reclamation through language genuinely possible, or are we fooling ourselves? That's such a potent question. <laughs> I really like that inclusion of are we fooling ourselves? Because I don't know that I have an answer here. You know, I would like to believe it is. I would like to believe that when I take language that has cut me in the past and I use that, that it means something, that it does something. Um, Mm. And I, I think maybe in my poetics, I am writing toward the hope that it might. I think that part of the mission of my poetics, at least as it stands with the second book, Deed, is to assert that maybe it does. You know, maybe we can take these words that have held violence and remake them. The opening poem of that book ends with this phrase to say, When I tell you how beautiful you are, you riot laughter. Kiss me and call me a dyke. Your smile arrives, day bright, and unburdens the slur of all its blood. So I don't know if I have an answer, but I desperately, desperately hope that maybe we can remake this language, that we can take these words from that state as a weapon, make them a tool again. There are two instances
1: in Wound from the Mouth of a Wound that seem to do that kind of hoping, that respond to moments of so-called humor in a way that changes them. So there are two moments, very memorable, very painful, uh, jokes from a father and from a brother, uh, that have a premise that are cruel, cruel to a trans speaker, to the existence of disability. To me, they sort of bookend the book. One is sort of near the front, and one is almost at the end. And there's this grief in the experience of someone else's laugh. And it's a laugh that's not forgotten. It's something said so casually, but it it is so infinite in the memory. It's terrorizing. The poems seem to change in rewriting what has happened, the premise of these interactions. Do you think comedy can be a guise for violence in this way, whether it's structural or interpersonal? And, and where do you think the play and the comedy can be a genuine mode of connection and of care?
0: So I know one of the other poets that you'll be talking to soon on the podcast, maybe before me, I don't know how it'll end up falling, but is the poet Douglas Kearney who was actually my mentor in grad school, and as myself being a deeply vested poet of metaphor, it's an interesting relationship because Doug is a poet who fundamentally disavows metaphor for its historical relation to violence, for the way in which insisting one thing is or is like another can be a rendering of a violence. Mm -hmm. And I think... I'm trying in those poems to reverse that relationship, to take this thing that is said that is a violence and by metaphorizing it and remaking its context Mm. to try and pull the violence from it. It's up to a reader whether the attempts of these poems are successful. It's up to history to peer review those readers.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But I think that is the hope in those moments that maybe I can take this thing, this mechanism of language, the metaphor that is a potentially violent and use it to render something away from its violent state.
1: And Doug is so interested in humor and in how it can play a role in poetry or the presentation of poetry that that particularly seems like a a great inversion to acknowledge. Uh, Your process is so collaborative and at the same time very individual, very personal. Uh, You have generously offered this prompt of the burning high bun to others, to the world. And I'm curious about your relationship to other people's prompts. Have you been prompted by mentors or teachers or friends in a way that's been impactful? Have any of your poems or styles come from prompts that you take, whether from poetry video games, horror movies?
0: Yeah, my work, I think, is deeply intertextual at all times. You know, whether this is working with an epigraph from a poet I love, working in the after poem, Mm. which is something I think will be inextricable from my work for a long time, whether it's (laughs) phrases and that mode of intertextuality, or even the horror movie and the jump scare completely remade my relationship to specifically the Elizabethan sonnet. Because the more I looked at mm. it, I was like, oh, the Elizabethan sonnet is structured in the exact same way as a punchline in standup, which is also the exact <laughs> same structure as a jump scare in a horror movie. These things are all inextricably tied. And as you know, an early poet who didn't have a ton of resources, a ton of teachers. You know, I think up to this point, I've had maybe like five people who I would consider fundamental teachers in my life as a writer. I found these legacies by looking at the notes and acknowledgments of books, by seeing who is reading who, Mm. who was taught by who. And if I loved a poet, I would read Basically, anyone I could get my hands on who is in that acknowledgement. And I hope in any project I put out from here to the moment I leave this big floating ball of earth that folks who like my work will follow those tracks, will see the work of the people I love, whose work has shaped me. I think for Writers, especially teaching themselves, being autodidacts in isolation, is a beautiful resource to suddenly enter at least the ghost of a community.
1: The ghost of a community. It's very encouraging to think about the front matter and the back matter of books being guidelines, being starting points for people who read your book, who read books that they love and connect to. There's a line in your book. I feel most daughter. There's another with the most woman I feel all day. Are there instances or memories that make you feel most writer, that make you feel most teacher, that make you feel most reader?
0: I love to tell this story uh, because it is a moment that really made me feel like very officially writerly. (laughs) And that is a poem from the first book. All I ever wanted to be is nothing at all. There is a line in this poem. So contextually, the poem is about eating disorder and eating disorder's relationship to my transness, although I did not know it at the time. Mm. There's a line, each calorie, a single match struck in the gut. And I fact-checked this metaphor. I went back and I found like notes on physics when I was learning physics. And I calculated what is the ignition temperature necessary to light a match, converted those units into (laughs) calories. And then the calories have to convert into kilocalories because a food calorie is actually like a thousand energetic calories. And a lot of people don't realize this. And then, you know, calculated it out. It was like point... Eight, six, seven, whatever. So it was almost one. It was like, okay. So then the match struck is essentially a single calorie. Okay, I can do this because I've checked my math.
1: Mm, right. Yeah.
0: And I don't know. These ways in which these engagements with my work that force me to push outside of the bounds of just creating that require this relationship to intertext, to Mm. making sure what I'm saying actually holds water, this to me is often where I feel the most writerly. Not necessarily like a good metaphor, but creating something which feels like it holds water, and like it holds weight.
1: For some reason, learning about your process of How to find out if this particular line holds water is making me think you're not one of the poets that really struggles with
0: taxes. (laughs) Oh no, no, uh, taxes suck. The IRS (laughs) has taken years of my life. I will never get back. It's horrible. The all the apps. Yeah, there's really something about getting to the point where you're successful enough as a poet, where you're actually making money, and then realizing you have to file Mm -hmm. as. A self owned business? Employed, yes, yeah, self employed. And then they take all your money yes, away. Yes, it's a lot. Sorry
1: to our listeners who are hoping that it's easy and fun and delicious money. <laughs> um, to send our listeners off, do you have any favorite prompts or practice to give or do for poetry? Especially thinking about summertime as often a time of rest, often a time of shifting. Any plans that you would suggest or practices that might be generative?
0: I'm not the most restful person. This is something I actually have to put active work toward, which (laughs) maybe defeats the purpose of rest. Mm. Uh, For anyone listening to this podcast who is like an astrology person, I'm a triple Virgo and all of the problems in my life are caused by this. So I will give a prompt that unfortunately has nothing to do with resting and is maybe a little masochistic on the poetic side. So this comes from you know one of the people who I consider a former teacher, the poet Luther Hughes. It's a little modified because it doesn't have like poems to go along with it. But often as writers, we kind of avoid saying what we mean. And I think one of the dangers, especially as a developing writer, is this avoidance this writing in circles around the point. So, think about the things you've written circles around in your recent poems. Think about the things lurking at the border of your poems that remain unsaid. Take those things and then find a way in a poem to just fucking say it. Because sometimes... That is the thing that most needs to just out loud be said.
1: I love that. Thank you so much. Torrin, it was so nice to chat and hear so much about your process. Thank you all. Big thanks to Torn A. Greathouse. Torn's debut collection, Wound from the Mouth of a Wound, from Milkweed Editions in 2020, was the winner of the Kate Tufts Discovery Award. Her second collection, Deed, is forthcoming from Wesleyan University Press in fall 2024. They teach at the Rainier Writing Workshop, the low-residency MFA program at Pacific Lutheran University. You can read an essay on the burning high bun form which includes a writing prompt in the July-August 2023 issue of Poetry, as well as several poems from the forthcoming collection in the November 2022 issue in print and online. If you're not yet a subscriber to the magazine, there's a special rate for podcast listeners. For a limited time, you can get a full year of the magazine for twenty dollars 10 Ten book-length issues for $20. Visit poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer to subscribe. That's poetrymagazine.org slash podcastoffer. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster de Plume, John McCowan, Rob Mazurik, and Irreversible Entanglements. Until next time, with cheers to our collaborators, teachers, and spies. Thanks for listening.